This is an Odyssey original. There we go. Uh, this is KNX in Death. I'm Larry Perel. In for Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon. In for Charles Feldman today. So, you know, the Hollywood writers have their deal. It's a tentative deal with the studios. What happens now to the actors? We'll go in depth into when Hollywood can get back to business. Now, the CDC says they're worried about flesh-eating bacteria. We're going to tell you if you need to worry, too. And phone etiquette, it keeps changing. Uh, We're going to look into when it's okay to text, call, and even leave a voicemail so you don't make things awkward with others. (laughs) It's so hard to figure out. There are rules now, Larry. We have to follow those rules. But we're going to start with Hollywood Strikes and the deal for writers And really now, what that means for the actors. J. Christopher Hamilton is a TV, radio, and film professor at Syracuse University. And entertainment attorney Jeff, and Jeff Torres is an actor and SAG-AFTRA member. Thank you both for joining us. Jeff, uh, I'm going to start with you uh, because we know now, we've been talking about it for a little bit, WGA has their tentative deal. We're waiting to just hear this is going to be ratified by the rank and file what does this mean for SAG after? Because this is not a rubber stamp situation. Now that WGA has their contract, doesn't mean, boom, you're going to have contracts either. There are different issues that SAG after members have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, uh, the WGA kind of sounded the alarm bell on so many things and I think uh, galvanized our union. And uh, obviously, we're all super grateful and we're super excited for them. You know, I've been volunteering as a SAG captain uh, at Disney and we've all kind of been putting so much effort forth yeah i think what it means for us is that you know uh we're gonna keep doing what we want what we're gonna we're gonna keep uh uh you know the pressure on with our strikes you know production can't really go back to anything without us acting in it um the wga still stands in solidarity with us even if they're not officially um picketing anymore um i think it sets a precedence for what we want for our contracts so i i trust the negotiating committee of the WGA to have gotten a really great deal for their membership. And I think it sets a precedent for our membership as well. Uh, Jeff, I, I want to uh, go to this with you. Um, obviously, there are some things uh, within the writer's deal, the tentative deal right now, that are common with the SAG-AFTRA, what SAG-AFTRA uh, membership and negotiators are looking to do. Are there points that were not included with the WGA deal? Uh, obviously, AI was in there, some other things uh, that you're concerned about going forward. Uh, to be honest with you, as far as their deal goes and, and our deal goes, the, the biggest things I think that we had in common were the AI protections and residuals. So those those to me were the, the most important ones uh, as far as what, what goes for actors. I think self-tapes was a, a big part of it. Uh, uh, protection for our background actors. Uh, I believe there was some stuff for, for stunt members as well. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not super concerned. I think, I mean, once we'll see the fine print, we'll see what it looks like for them. But I, I you know, I'm, I think that we have even more strength now that they've settled, settled their, their, um, their contracts going forward. I think it just kind of looks like the studios have finally come to their senses and are ready to actually deal fairly. And of course, Jay Christopher Hamilton, you know, you, you've seen this whole process play out uh, mm-hmm. as a TV, radio and film professor at Syracuse University. I'm sure this is a topic of conversation every day for the past several months. So as far as far as the deal that has been struck now and it be, still being called tentative, it has to be ratified. What happens after this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I also want to add, I lived through uh, the 2008 WGA strike because I was working at ABC Studios in Business Affairs 
when we were suspending deals like many of the studios just did with these writer showrunners. So I've seen it both academically and kind of in the trenches. And in terms of next steps, I mean, you know, get, get everyone back to work, right? I mean, there's going to be weeks uh, before um, I think anything, uh, any productive work can be accomplished, considering all of the prep that's needed and all of the I mean, you know, allocating resources, figuring out what's going to get cut in terms of new shows, what shows are going to come back. There's a lot of things up in the air. And I mean, it, depending upon where you sit as a writer, there's still a lot of uncertainty, even though you have a potentially have a new contract. And what about AI? Let's talk about that for just a quick second. We're running out of time for this first segment. Yeah. But um, I want to sort of cover the fact that this is a three-year deal with the WGA. How do you sort of square the fact that it is only three years and a technology that moves so quickly? Are there provisions within this contract, best to your knowledge, uh, Jay Christopher, that uh, will uh, sort of open the door for negotiations to deal with that technology as it advances once that contract expires? You know, I wish I could answer that definitively, but I, I, the the details of the agreement haven't been disclosed. But we do know a couple of things. We do know it's far better than what the DGA established for their union. And um, but I couldn't speak to whether or not, you know, what 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 has been built into it in terms of revisiting the technology. And speaking of the SAG after strike, I would imagine SAG after will go into their negotiations on the on the heels of the successes that the WGA had and maybe even improve the terms for their union when it comes to uh, AI sure. technology. Jay Christopher, I, I want to turn to you um, and and we'll, Jeff, we'll have you chime in on this because yeah. uh, full disclosure as a SAG-AFTRA member, I think some of the sticking points for SAG-AFTRA would be AI. Yes, there are some of the same concerns, but for the actors, I would think there are some concerns about likeness and the ability to use somebody's likeness and voice, et cetera. Do you think that is one of the things that's really going to, you know, be hammered out here in the sag after deal? Yeah, I believe that's likely to be a successful issue to, that will be resolved. I mean, look, you know, as you know, as a member, I mean, the employer, studio, whomever has a right to use your name, image and likeness, provided they either compensate you adequately or get your consent. So, you know, it's usually something like that is less of a complexity around technology and rights and more about what's the number, what what amount of money will give you satisfaction or what approval right will give you comfort? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like uh, that is that is a sticking point that I think we will not stop striking until that's absolutely cemented. Um, right now, uh, we just had a strike authorization vote on a separate contract that was for uh, the interactive media contract, which is video games. And that is the number one sticking point of that contract. It is that, you know, they can take three seconds of a sound clip now. It used to be, you know, six hours or an hour or two hours of your voice, you know, six months ago. And now it's three seconds. They can hear your voice. They can replicate it and they can use it and they don't have to compensate you. And so these are the things that we that's the existential crisis that we face as actors, because our face, our likeness is is the value that we offer. Um, and I, I just that I, I don't think that it's feasible for us to go forward with any contract that doesn't offer that protection and the compensation that we need for our likeness. Jeff, also, uh, can you comment for a second? Look, the WGA has their tentative deal. I've heard timelines anywhere from a week to maybe two, even three weeks before this gets to its members for ratification. Once it does, you know, you can't, you know, people have to read these scripts. Uh, that takes actors to do that. What kind of timeline are we talking about? And what kind of shows do you think are going to come back first? 
Oof, man, uh, that's a really tough question as far as what kind of shows. I mean, I know that so many things got canceled uh, during this time. Uh, Jay Christopher was talking about that. A lot of things have gotten canceled, uh, and it really sucks. It always seems to be that shows that have uh, more diverse voices are the first ones to get the axe. You know, we have had some huge Hollywood movies that came out this summer that we could not talk about as, as uh, per our, our union didn't allow us to advertise that stuff. As far as what's coming back, um, I'm hoping that there will be diverse voices. I'm hoping that there will be these shows uh, that are on television. I'm assuming that procedurals will be the first ones to come back uh, as, as far as when we will actually start acting again. And, and you know, writers obviously need time to write these scripts. I'm assuming that maybe at some point in November, we might go back to, to actually auditioning for things and stuff like that because we have to ratify our contract when we get it as well. Yeah, it's not like a light switch going off and on. There are things that yep. have to slowly start ramping up and things that have to happen uh, to have other things happen and so on and so on. You know, Larry touched on this a little earlier. So this contract is for three years. This technology is constantly changing, this emergent technology and AI. Three years from now, what do you see happening? Because this, if if I had to guess, this is going to seem like ancient history and this technology we're dealing with right now is going to seem like ancient and antiquated by the time we hit the three-year mark. Uh, are you expecting another long, drawn-out fight again to change and uh, adapt to emergent technology and how it affects the Hollywood industry? I think the thing that Jay Christopher pointed out uh, was really uh, intelligent. And, and I think I agree with him that the deal that the WGA got as far as their AI protections is better than what the directors got. And I think that we will equally get something that's good because what we need is a broad net of protection. You know, uh, I think the, w, the DGA got, uh, uh, I forgot what uh, generative AI, I think was the one that they got protections from. But it's not AI in general. It's generative. It's a specific kind of AI, right? So it's like saying, oh, you get protection from trucks, but not all cars. You know, it's like what the deal that we wanted to protect us from any uh, motor vehicle, if that's the analogy you want to use, right? And that's the kind of protection that we're looking for going forward that will help us, uh, no matter how the technology emerges, will be protected from artificial intelligence and that human beings have to be involved in, in the creative process. All right, we've been speaking with Jeff Torres, uh, is an actor and a sag after member. Also, Jay Christopher Hamilton is an entertainment attorney and professor of TV, radio, and film at Syracuse University. Right now, though, uh, some people in Lahaina are returning to their devastated properties for the first time since the town was destroyed by that huge fire that happened early last month. Uh, this comes as West Maui will formally reopen to tourism in two weeks. Joyce Mitchell Minor is a real estate agent in Maui. She has colleagues who lost homes and even clients whose homes were destroyed uh, just after closing. Thanks so much for joining us on In-Depth. Aloha, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, Aloha to you. Okay, this is a pivotal day uh, today and an an emotional day, I'm sure, for many residents uh, in Lahaina uh, and West Maui. Uh, People finally being able to get to or return, rather, to uh, the remains, uh, many of them charred remains of their homes. Uh, Who gets to go first to to come back? You know, I'm not sure on the specifics. I did listen in on the um, there was a governor's uh, statement to to all a few days ago where they were going to, from my understanding, they were going by uh, sections, like a grid. 
and and each section north to south would be allowed to come back and and spend time on their property to uh, assess and do whatever they needed to do um, or what they could do. Um, that's the last understanding that I heard. You are able to drive through West Maui. You just were not able to go down into the areas that were affected. You know, Joyce, it's, first of all, uh, people who lost their homes and family members and loved ones who were killed. Uh, 97 lives as it stands right now. There are still some unidentified people. Destroyed 2,200 buildings. 86% of them were residential. So, and a lot of these people were born and raised and lived here. This is their community, and this is what they know. But, and we're hearing that officials, unless they alter some zoning laws and make some other changes, these people who have already lost so much and been through so much are not going to be able to afford to live there and even rebuild. I mean, this is adding insult to injury. What can they do? Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm not the head of all of that. However, from what I'm learning, um, I was just on a meeting. There is a FHA loan, a 203H, I believe, that will allow if your credit score is 580 or higher, zero down, and an ability to rebuild on your property when that is able. So there are, you know, FEMA, um, the state, the county, the federal government, there's a lot of support to make that happen. To, you know, I'm not the expert, but to rebuild Lahaina is going to take uh, layers and layers of cultural advising, uh, federal government support on the ground and above to make sure it's done correctly and with um, attention to the cultural needs of Lahaina, as it was our capital back in the 1800s, and, you know, to maybe restore it to how it was lush and and vibrant before the sugarcane time. So there's, there's so many, you know, there's so many, it's an opportunity as devastating as it is. It is an opportunity in my opinion to make it done right. And, and, um, and there are a lot of resources. The challenge, of course, is how long will that take? Sure. No, this all, it, yeah, this all yeah. has to be dealt with very delicately. Uh, certainly, you're, you're talking about right. emotions. You're talking about people, fe- a family, relatives, you know, people that were born there, uh, all of that. October 8th, I want to talk about that for just a quick second because we're running out of time. Uh, the state plans to reopen West Maui to visitors on October 8th. And according to the governor, Governor Green, working uh, now to transition more than 7,400 displaced people from hotels to long-term housing. How is that going to work with visitors, right, who need to stay in hotels uh, who right now look like they're going to collide with that process? My understanding, and I just spoke with one of our agents who lost their home um, and saw her yesterday, is like she just got a full-time long-term rental. So many have been able to find rentals. Um, If not, they're going into short-term rental occupation and so that the hotels can operate or maybe one wing. I'm not sure that's hotel specific. Um, I do know that I was on a flight from Oregon the other day and, you know, there were people coming. I mean, Maui's open. Uh, Lahaina is not. There's a lot to do and see and enjoy, albeit for Lahaina. It's, and we need visitors to enjoy the other parts of Maui so that our economy can survive. All right, Joyce Mitchell Minor, real estate agent in Maui. We will uh, continue to follow this story as 
the residents are slowly allowed to go back to their properties and, and follow the situation of what's going to happen to those people who lost their homes who may seriously face some uh, challenges and being priced out of their own communities. Thank you so much for joining us. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Larry Perel, who's in for Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. Well, if COVID, RSV, and the flu aren't enough for you to worry about right now, the CDC has now issued a health advisory warning about increases in a flesh-eating bacteria. I know. What else, right? Here to explain what's driving that increase is Salvador Almargo Moreno. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Central Florida and an expert specifically in flesh-eating bacteria. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us. First of all, what kind of bacteria is this? And are there usually a lot of cases every year? Hi, thanks for having me. So um, the the species that that causes this disease, it's called Vibrio vulnificus. And it's, it's been endemic to the coast of Florida and the Gulf of Mexico for quite a bit. And typically there are no, a lot of cases, but they, you know, they, given how gruesome they are, they, they make the news. So we don't, we don't get more than, uh, you know, a few dozen or hundreds of cases per year. But as the waters are getting warmer and warmer, the range of the bacterium is actually increasing. So it's, we're getting cases in places that we didn't used to have them before. How do you get it? So basically, you can get it through in, in two different ways. A, by consuming um, shellfish uh, that has the bacterium, such as oysters that are contaminated, and um, or through open wound exposure. So, um, you know, you go into a place where the bacterium is living happily with a, you know, big gash on, on your food, and it can enter the 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 flesh and that's where you know it gets its its name of flesh eating because it can actually grow and uh, cause quite a bit of severe damage. How do you know if you're eating shellfish uh, that it's contaminated that it is contaminated? How do you how do you sort of decide that or is there how's that regulated? Yeah, so that's a very very good question because this is kind of like one um, since the bacterium it's actually endemic, right? So it, it lives in, in in coastal waters. And the vast majority of the strains of this of that species, Vibrovulnificus, are completely harmless. But there are some of them that actually can cause disease in humans. So it's pretty hard to tell the difference. The good thing is that they're extremely rare. So that's why we don't see, you know, uh, these cases uh, often. It, it, but because it's not so common to actually have them in an oyster. But if you happen to have them, then that, that's kind of bad news. Okay, maybe maybe just avoid those things for now if you're overly worried about it or, you know, you might be immunocompromised or something like that. But, uh, Professor, yeah, yeah prof- you touched on something, and I just want to make sure I heard you clearly. You're seeing cases in places where you normally don't see them, and, mm-hmm. and you attributed it to warming waters uh, around the world, are we to to uh, take from that that maybe global warming and the changing environment and our climate may have something to do with this? Absolutely, there are things that we can kind of speculate, but this is not one of them. This is factual, right? We can see a direct uh, correlation between the range of the bacterium uh, and the warming of the waters of of that specific area. So. 
over the past few decades, it's been increasing an average of 58 kilometers per year, its range. So it's always been in Florida, but now you can detect it up to the coast of Maine. Should we, should we be worried here in California that uh, that bacteria might show up? Uh, I mean, as I mentioned, they are natural inhabitants of, of aquatic environments. So provided the right conditions and, and a means of, you know, transport, I would not be surprised if they were there. Um, the good news is like, you know, those cases are really rare because they, they require a set of uh, uh, pre-existing conditions in the, in, in, in the host for the bacterium to actually be effective. All right, I, we're running out of time here, only about 30 seconds, but what are the signs other than I wake up one morning and my foot is gone that, uh, <laughs> that you... <laughs> okay, sorry. that's a bit extreme. All right, well, well I'm just <laughs> that's saying. That's Okay, that is, you're right, that is a problem, but what are the signs that I might have it? Yeah, so basically what I always recommend is if you go to the beach one day or you go swimming uh, and you have an open wound, first of all, reconsider that, right? Uh, and if you happen to say, I'm going to go swimming no matter what, as you get home, kind of monitor it, right? Monitor the wound. The same way as we monitor ourselves after we go hiking for fleas, right? Uh, uh, so that you know, we don't get uh, Lyme disease, right? So just monitor. If, and if you get swelling and redness, you might want to go to the to the ER. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Salvador Almargo Moreno, professor of medicine at the University of Central Florida and expert in flesh-eating bacteria. Phones have been around for a long time now, cell phones and phones. Obviously, they've evolved and so has the etiquette, apparently, with our cell phones and what we do. It's kind of hard to figure out. Smartphones and unlimited texting have changed our phone behavior, have even made it more complicated and confusing at times. Like, uh, when should we leave a voicemail? Well, here to sort this all out is Nick Layton. He's an etiquette expert and host of the Etiquette Podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves? Nick, thanks so much for being with us. Ahoy, hoy. That was actually the original greeting that Alexander Graham Bell wanted for the telephone. Ahoy, okay. ahoy. Ahoy, ahoy. Yeah. Well, right. So I guess I guess things have changed quite a bit. All right, so a little bit. Right. So a what little are, bit. what are the new rules of the road out there? Well, here's the thing. With every new technology, there is this temptation to try and come up with new etiquette rules. But actually, the classics still do work. Uh, we just have to sort of modify them for like new situations. But let's let's not throw them out. So in general, etiquette is just about recognizing that other people exist and being mindful of them. And so for all of this, it just comes down to what is the most mindful thing for the other person? Usually, what is the most mindful thing for their time? And then whatever that is, like, that's what we should do. Okay, so Leighton, I have a 19-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. And both of them, well, my daughter more specifically will say, because she's got a cell phone, will say, oh, my God, you, you don't leave voicemails for anyone. First of all, <laughs> you don't call. That was your first mistake. The secondly, don't leave a voicemail. You're supposed to text people if you got a question or maybe, hey, you want to uh, talk later. I've got an issue to talk about or whatever. But you're really supposed to text first. Am yeah, I right? No, Did I get that right? Well, well, you got it right in terms of what your daughter wants. Um, <laughs> and there does feel like... 
a generational thing here, uh, because I think if you do talk to people in different generations, they will have very different feelings about this. Um, but yes, I think definitely for people your daughter's age, yeah, the idea that you would ever call, how dare you? That's outrageous. <laughs> yes, that's offensive. I, yeah, of course you would text first. So I think if you know that about a person and what their style is, then yeah, I think you'd want to respect their wishes. Yeah, my daughter will do that too. I'll 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 call her and she'll say, "What do you, what is it that you want?" It via text, right? Yeah, no, no, like, no. But when I call her, if I call her on the phone, oh, she'll answer. Yeah, she, yeah she'll answer. Oh, nice. She says, "What do you want?" I'm busy. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, at least you're being honest about it. I mean, look, uh, I I go back all the way to uh, when I was a youngster. I'll frame I'll frame it that way uh, to call waiting. So oh. what's the, what's the equivalent now? Like when you heard the click, right? Talking to somebody, and then you had you heard the click, and you had to decide at that moment in time. Is the person I'm talking to more important than the important than the person that's uh, that wants to get a hold of me now without even knowing who they who they are or who they were? Right. So how do you do that with now FaceTime? Right. FaceTime has got these you know messages that you can, I guess, uh, sort of uh, transcribe in real time, decide whether or not you want to take the call. So what's the right play there? Well, I think in general, just because we're always reachable, which is definitely the case now, I mean, globally, no matter where we are 24 seven, does not need does not mean we have to be reached. And so it is always up to you to decide, oh, do I want to have this phone call right now? Do I want to respond to this text? Uh, I, it's always up to you. So if you see a call come in and you just aren't in the mood or don't want to, like, just let it go to voicemail or respond to the text later. Like you are not obligated in most cases to actually respond in real time. Okay. So just for clarification, my, my kids are good about if mom calls, they will answer because if they don't answer, I'm going to call like 500 times until they answer because I'm going to start thinking the worst. Like, oh my God, I got to start calling emergency rooms. What the heck is happening? They're not answering my text. But I have to admit, uh, and I, you're right. It's individual preference. I'm, I'm Gen X, and uh, but I still, um, you know, I'll see someone call and I'll think, oh, I really need to talk to them, but I, I don't have the time to really talk to them the way I want to to give them justice. I don't want to hurry somebody off the phone. Is it better to just tell them that? Hey, yeah, text them and say, you know what? I, I don't have a lot of time to talk. Can we, can we talk later? I think that sounds great. I mean, you could definitely sort of set the time when you would be free for a deeper conversation. And just back to your daughter for a moment. If I think if you're paying the bill, then you get to set the rules of engagement. <laughs> so whatever you need from your kids, if you're paying that cell phone bill, then yeah, if, if the rule is, oh, you got to call me back or text me back because uh, I'm the parent and I'm paying for this, um, then absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, Nick, Nick, do you think that we're we're spending too much time thinking about what to do? Oh, I wish we spent more time. I mean, my inbox is full of people reporting etiquette crimes. Yeah, no, most of us are going out there being oblivious and not mindful of other people's time. Uh, so I, I do like this conversation, which is like, oh, what is the most mindful thing for the person I'm trying to contact? Right, and how do they want to be communicated with? So right, I, I don't think we have maxed that out yet. All right, we're running out of time here, but what's the, uh, what's the top etiquette crime or three top etiquette crimes in your mind that you've received? Uh, globally, uh, I think it's uh, cutting your toenails on an airplane. Oh, not ew, yes, no. <laughs> Being on your speakerphone anywhere in public, I think we've decided as a society we're just not interested in hearing other people's conversations. Uh, and then number three, I think it is not RSVPing to something promptly. 
All right. There it is. Just keep those three things in mind and uh, you won't be ostracized by everyone in society. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Nick Layton, etiquette expert and host of the Etiquette Podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves? All right. uh, Good stuff. Uh, The the toenail thing, I got to say, that would be... Oh, yeah. That's a big one. I I don't want to see that. I also don't want to hear it. Even hearing it. Not even seeing it, I don't even want to hear it. Agreed. Uh, Look, this has been KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock.